Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206 451 42 GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel, and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891 or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Standard Podcast. Today's podcast, Francis Fukuyama, was recorded November 14th at the Great Seattle University and is brought to you by Town Hall Seattle. I hope you enjoy. Um, before I turn things over, I want to acknowledge that we're not actually in Town Hall. Um, we've had a lot of events this past year and a half at Pickett uh, Auditorium, and I want to thank Seattle University for hosting us. Um, yeah, we'll get a mop. We'll get a mop for that. <clears throat> um, finally, I just want to say thank you to our members. Uh, members are the reason why we can keep these events um, affordable um, and can have a lot of other events um, throughout the rest of the year. 
Um, while we are outside of our building, we are still doing events throughout the city. Um, hopefully the building is going to be open in March. Um, it's going to be a really great grand opening. Um, but until then, we still have events um, through the rest of the year, so you can pick up a calendar on your way out to check those out. And now onto the program. Francis Fukuyama is the Olivier, Olivier Namalini Senior Fellow at Stanford University Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. He's previously taught at the Paul H. Nitz School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and at the George Mason University School of Public Policy. He's the author of Political Order and Political Decay, The Origins of Political Order, The End of History and the Last Man, Trust in America at the Crossroads, Democracy, Power, and Neoconservative Legacy. His book, Identity, the subject of tonight's talk, uh, the subtitle is The Demand for, the Demand for Dignity and the Pol Politics of Resentment. Um, so please join me in welcoming Francis Fukuyama to tonight's. Uh, so thank you. It's really um, a pleasure to be back in Seattle. I was here four years ago for my last book, Political Order and Political Decay. In the intervening four years, I'm afraid there's been a lot more political decay in the United States. Uh, and that's actually the occasion for the current uh, book. So the bottom line, in a certain way, is to say that global politics and politics in the United States is shifting in a very dramatic way. Uh, through most of the 20th century, politics revolved around basically an economic polarity between a left that wanted more equality, more redistribution, better access to social uh, services and the like, and a right that wanted free markets, individual freedom, uh, and the like. That is increasingly being displaced by a politics of identity meaning that people are lining up not about over their economic policy preferences, but rather over who they are, uh, oftentimes based on their uh, ethnicity or race or some other fixed characteristic. Uh, if you want a vivid example of what that means uh, in our politics, just look at the election that happened last, uh, last week. In the month prior to that election, uh, Paul Ryan had actually advised Donald Trump that he should campaign on the economy. You know, we've got 3.7% unemployment, wages are going up, economic growth is very high. Uh, you can attribute that to the Republican tax cuts. Trump listened politely, and well, actually, I don't know if he ever listens politely, but <laughs> he listened and basically ignored that advice. And what we heard about instead was this migrant caravan that was about to invade the United States, about ending birthright citizenship, about sending the US military down to the border to protect uh, America from this uh, invasion by foreigners. That's what it means to be uh, obsessed with the question of identity, you know, protecting somehow American, a presumed American identity uh, against this kind of threat from the outside. Uh, and this is not good for democracy for a number of, I think, pretty clear reasons. But the developments in the United States are not uh, unique. Uh, it's part of a global movement. And over the last decade, we've seen the rise of a number of similar kinds of populist 
uh, governments uh, in established democracies. So in Hungary, the, law, uh, the Fidesz party, Viktor Orban, came to power in 2010. Uh, this is a, a, a nationalist party that has defined Hungarian national identity in terms of Hungarian ethnicity, which is very problematic because not everybody living in Hungary is actually an ethnic uh, Hungarian. You have the Law and Justice Party coming to power in Poland. You have President Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, in a way, Putin was one of the original uh, populists, somebody that is elected in a legitimate election and then uses that power to concentrate uh, authority in the executive and then to undermine uh, the other institutions that should exist in a liberal democracy. And this is really, I think, what the threat we're facing is. It's not an external threat necessarily, like during the Cold War of military aggression or subversion or whatever. It's an internal threat. Uh, it's a threat to basic institutions. Uh, political scientists do not have a agreed upon definition of populism, but I'll give you mine, which I think works for quite a few of these cases. A populist leader, uh, has a, uh, it's, a, it's really more defined by a style of politics where the populist leader tries to establish a, a personal connection between himself or herself and the people. This connection is based on the charisma of that leader, uh, but it makes that populist leader almost automatically anti-institutional uh, in the following sense, a liberal democracy is not just about elections. It's also about a constitutional order and a rule of law that limit power by creating check and balance institutions. And what a charismatic populist leader does is to attack those institutions because they say, well, I was elected. I represent the people. Uh, the people want me to do something and here are these courts, here are these journalists, uh, here's a bureaucracy that doesn't want me to accomplish what the people want me to accomplish, and that leads to a systematic attack on institutions. And so this has been going on in all of the aforementioned countries, Hungary, Poland, Turkey, Russia. The courts have been uh, sidelined or stacked with partisans of the ruling party. The media has been cowed uh, and um, uh, largely sidelined the opposition parties are not allowed to run uh, on a level playing field. Uh, and the other important characteristic, I think, of the new kind of populism, what makes it a right-wing form of populism rather than a left-wing populism is that when the populist leader talks about the people, they're not referring to the whole people. They're usually referring to a certain subset defined, you know, as in the case I just mentioned of, of Hungary in terms of ethnicity or in terms of race or in terms of some more traditional understanding of what the people are and not the full diversity of the actual population that, uh, you know, that lives in the country. Uh, and so in that sense, it is very uh, exclusionary, right? And this is another characteristic that I think, unfortunately, our current president uh, shares both the charismatic element uh, and this exclusionary element. So uh, when he was accepted the nomination of the Republican Party back in 2016, he had this one phrase in his acceptance speech that was you know, taken from the playbook of Juan Perón or Benito Mussolini or a lot of earlier politicians. He said, 
I alone understand your problems and I alone can fix them. Meaning it's not the institution, it's not the Republican Party, it's not you know, a certain set of policies that's gonna fix what's wrong with America. It's me personally that can do this. Uh, and in fact, just like these other populist leaders, uh, I think this president has been anti-institutional, so he came into office attacking the entire intelligence community because he didn't like the conclusion that Russia had meddled in the American election. He's called the mainstream media enemies of the American people. I mean, that's a phrase, I think, we're, I, I think the last person that said something like that was Joseph Stalin, probably. Uh, and then uh, he has relentlessly attacked you know, his own FBI, his own Justice Department. He just fired his attorney general, all because they're doing what, in a rule of law, society you're supposed to do, which is to have an independent judiciary that you know, doesn't place anybody above the law. Uh, so this is, I think, the particular crisis that democracy is in right now. The reasons that we have this populist upsurge, however, I think are really what I was trying to uh, understand in the course of the book. The typical explanation has to do with globalization and economics. <coughs> Excuse me, and there's clearly something to this. Globalization has made everybody rich. So the output of the, the, the world economy between 1970 and, and, and the 2000s quadrupled. So a lot of new wealth was created. A lot of rich people, a lot of uh, oligarchs in virtually every country. But that, that new wealth was not evenly distributed uh, because... What trade theory will tell you, you know, if you take a trade theory course in college, is that although a regime of free trade where people, goods, investment, services can move freely over international borders, it will make all of the participants rich, but not every individual in every country gets richer. And in particular, people with relatively low skills and low education in rich countries are gonna lose jobs and opportunity to rising middle classes in poor countries. And that's exactly what's happened in a lot of developed uh, democracies. In the United States, in Britain, in other parts of Europe where a lot of manufacturing uh, industries have left for East Asia or South Asia or other parts of the developing world. And a lot of people's incomes have been you know, pretty severely impacted. About half of all Americans actually are not getting any higher incomes in real terms today in 2018 than they were back in the year 2000. And that's a long period of time uh, for incomes to be uh, stagnating. And so clearly it's this backlash against globalization uh, that is powering some of this populist unhappiness. But the other part that I think people don't get quite right is the cultural part that has to do with identity. Don't worry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna define identity in a second, so just be patient. But there's an important cultural part which I think explains why uh, it is that right-wing parties, right-wing populist parties have done well and not left-wing populist parties. Because if you think about it, after the economic crisis in 2008, you should have seen this big upsurge of left-wing activism and you know anger and, and, and there was a little bit of it. There's Occupy Wall Street and you know, movements like that, but the really big uh, parties that emerged were all on the right. The Tea Party, 
uh, came into being in 2010 after the election of, uh, of Obama. Uh, and you have the growth of populist parties all over Europe, uh, like the National Front in France or the Freedom Party in, in the Netherlands uh, and so forth. All anti-immigrant, uh, anti-European Union, the ones in, uh, uh, in Europe, uh, and all appealing to the same, I think, stratum of working class people that have been negatively affected by globalization, but the message that they've received is a cultural one, and what they've been voting on are cultural issues, particularly issues like immigration. So the core issue for all of these parties, and the reason they don't like the European Union uh, in Europe, is because they think the European Union is opening the gates to you know, uh, millions of people coming from the outside, stealing their jobs, undermining their welfare states, uh, and so forth. And it's this identity issue that really has powered that movement. All right, so what is identity? So there's a common you know, understanding identity is what's on your driver's license. That's not the way I mean it. Uh, I think, in, in my view, there's actually three components to a modern understanding of identity. So one is not modern. What is a universal characteristic of human psychology? Uh, Plato in the Republic labels this thumos. It's a part of the soul. He says there's a desiring part and there's a calculating part, but he says, isn't there a third part of the human soul that demands respect? Basically, it wants other people's approval of my worth and my uh, dignity. And this is something I think that economists really don't understand because the economists understand the desiring part, you know, that's what they call preferences. They understand the rational part. They think that human beings are rational utility maximizers. They don't understand the dignity part and the fact that oftentimes people will demand recognition of their dignity at the expense of their economic self-interest. And I think a lot of that has been going on in the recent politics, both here and in, uh, uh, in uh, Europe. So that's the foundation, that's the psychological foundation. The second aspect, though, has to do with the specific uh, source of dignity. So in traditional aristocratic societies, not everybody enjoyed dignity. Only warriors, only aristocrats, people that risked their lives were worthy of superior respect. But with the rise of, I think, Christianity and the belief in a kind of universal moral equality of people, the basis of dignity in the West began to change. Dignity was not something that was just reserved for an elite few. Uh, rather, it was something that all people, uh, all people had. In the original understanding, it, it had to do with moral choice, the ability to make proper moral choices that then becomes a, uh, a respect based on our agency, you know, that we can make decisions. We are free human beings that can choose between right and wrong, and in particular, we can choose uh, to, govern, uh, to govern ourselves. Um, and then the final aspect of identity has to do with the inside and the outside, and this is the really modern part. In modern identity, we believe that we've got this inner being, it deserves respect and it's not getting respect from the outside world. But the valuation that we attach to that inner being is much higher than all of the surrounding norms and rules and laws in the surrounding society. The adjustment that needs to be made is not that I've got to 
adjust my expectations and conform to the expectations of society. Rather, the society is the one that has to change. This really, uh, this valuation, this, this raising of the valuation of the inner self really begins with Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, because Luther says, basically what it means to be a Christian, it's not to accede to the rituals of the Catholic Church, that only affects the exterior person and God doesn't care about the exterior person. Uh, what really matters is faith. You cannot see faith. Faith is an inner characteristic of you know, one's inner being. Uh, one may not even know whether one has faith, but that's all that God cares about. So the inner person is what makes you a Christian and not conformity with the rules of the institutional Catholic Church. And what he brought about with the Protestant Reformation was forcing everybody in Europe to, you know, to honor that inner person at the expense of the authority of the Catholic Church. And that's what happens uh, after the Reformation uh, takes off. Now, to put that in a modern context, you think about the Me Too movement, right? So what is it that's at stake? So first of all, this is, this is really a dignity issue. Women believe that they have an inner, uh, I mean, they're, they're human beings. They have an inner source of dignity. They are a whole person who is characterized by you know, intelligence, knowledge, experience, you know, sympathy, all of the things that make you a complete human being, and yet men are simply regarding you as a sexual object that demeans you and puts you on a plane of, of you know, respect that's lower than what you really deserve. And as in you know, the Protestant Reformation, the idea is not that women have to learn to live with that, and adjust to these male, you know, male specified norms. Rather, the norms themselves have to change. The external society is the thing that has to adjust to that inner person, that authentic inner person. And that's really what's happening now with the Me Too movement. I mean, it's basically a cultural revolution where the, the broad norms of the society are in the process of shifting to honor that, that inner person, right? So that's the idea of identity, right? That we have these these inner selves, we may not even understand them fully, but they have value uh, and that they have to be recognized. They have to be recognized and that what's, that's what makes identity movements political because that's, that's what politics does. It gives you public recognition. <coughs> Many uh, existing political movements are based on a demand for dignity. Democracy is based on this demand for dignity. In 2011, there was a Tunisian vegetable seller named Mohamed Bouazizi. He had a cart in the informal economy. He was trying to make a living. The police confiscated the cart. He went to the governor's office. He says, where's my cart? And they would not give him an answer. They wouldn't even talk to him. In despair, he doused himself with gasoline, set himself on fire, and that was the trigger of the Arab Spring. The reason that it triggered uprisings in Egypt, Syria, Libya, a whole host of other Arab countries is that citizens of those countries saw something very familiar there. Under an authoritarian government, you are not treated with a minimal amount of respect that a human being deserves. Human being deserves an answer. You know, if they're gonna confiscate my livelihood, they should at least tell me, what law did I break? Why did they do this? But they weren't willing to do that uh, because they didn't have to. They're completely unaccountable governments. And so I think that the impulse behind the so-called color revolutions in many places or the, the thing that's brought many people out into the streets to protest 
life under an authoritarian government is driven by this demand for one's simple recognition um, uh, as a citizen. A democracy, a liberal democracy recognizes us. It recognizes our humanity by giving us rights. We have the right to belief, to speech, to association, and we have a right to share in political power by having a vote, right? So that all of the rights that we enjoy under our constitution are in, in a way symbolic recognition of the fact that every citizen has an equal share in power, an equal right to speak, uh, and so forth, right? And that's really, in a way, the moral basis of a liberal democracy. Uh, the, in 2013, after Mohammed Bouazizi, there was actually another uprising in Ukraine, which the Ukrainians now call the Revolution of Dignity. Uh, and again, it was a very similar issue. They had a president, Viktor Yanukovych, who was trying to drag Ukraine back into the Russian orbit, you know, this kleptocratic, corrupt system that Putin has created. He wanted to uh, basically, I mean, that was a system that he was trying to uh, profit from uh, in Ukraine, and a lot of young Ukrainians didn't want this. They wanted to live in a modern society in which citizens uh, are uh, treated impersonally by a government uh, that serves public interest and not just the private interest uh, of the ruling uh, elite. Uh, and so that was, you know, uh, the trigger for a major change in Ukrainian politics. And again, the issue was one of dignity. So dignity is the basis for democracy, but it also goes in different directions that are not necessarily as morally uplifting as that. Uh, after the French Revolution, there were actually two big strands in European politics. So one was a democratic strand, the rights of man, that were proclaimed by the revolutionaries in Paris that spread to the, every corner of Europe. But the other strand was nationalism, where the issue was dignity again, but it was not the universal dignity of equal human beings. It was the dignity of the French people standing up against other people. France had been invaded after the revolution by the Prussians and Austrians, a lot of other foreigners, and the whole nation rallied uh, behind the banner, you know, the tricolor, in order to expel those foreigners. And in fact, that national uh, enthusiasm is what took these French armies uh, all over Europe, you know, to create a, a, a continental uh, empire. And throughout the 19th century, these two forms of recognition, universal recognition in terms of the rights of man and a partial recognition of one's nation were vying with each other for dominance in Europe. And unfortunately, it was really the latter that ended up winning out. So that by August 1914, you know, we just celebrated the 100th anniversary of the armistice in World War I. Most Europeans, I think, today say, you know, would regard that war as a total disaster that undermined European civilization because of the out-of-control nationalisms that led to that war and then uh, 20 years later, uh, the Second World War, all right? So that's also a form of recognition. A nationalist says, my people are not recognized. They can only be recognized if they can live in their own country with their own government. But here we're living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire or the Russian Empire or somebody else's uh, political domain and we are not being recognized as a free and equal people. The problem with nationalism 
like many forms of recognition, is that the demand starts out as a demand for equal recognition. You know, we just want to be a country like other countries in the world, but it then quickly shades over into a feeling of superiority that, you know, we want to be recognized as better or superior. And that was the experience of German nationalism in the late 19th century. The first demand was simply to unify the different German-speaking peoples in Central and Eastern Europe, but it morphed into a kind of arrogant nationalism that found its ultimate expression in National Socialism and Adolf Hitler and you know, the catastrophe that followed uh, from that. So that's a less happy form of recognition. Uh, I would say that what passes for religious motivation today in the Middle East is actually also a form of identity politics. So many of the young fighters that left Europe and other parts of the Middle East to go fight on behalf of the Islamic State, you know, what was motivating them? So had they become converted to a particular brand of Islam? Well, that's possible. The, you know, the Saudis were ex exporting a certain interpretation of Islam that led to that, but if you look at the personal histories of a lot of those fighters, a lot of them were European Muslims who had rejected the, the, the kind of piety of their parents and their grandparents, this traditional form of village Islam that many of them practiced, but they did not feel adequately accepted or integrated into European society. And what I think Osama bin Laden or you know, the Islamic State did was to say, no, actually, you're part of a different community. Uh, you actually don't belong in Europe. You belong to this Muslim ummah. It's being oppressed. Muslims are being killed all over the world. When Osama bin Laden was 13 years old, uh, there was a story that he came into his parents' bedroom crying. He had just watched uh, you know, the mistreatment of Palestinians in Gaza, and he said, you know, everywhere Muslims are being oppressed, they're being disrespected. And that, in some sense, laid the ground for the organization, the terrorist organization uh, that he created. And so, again, a lot of, a lot of the passion behind um, uh, these, this kind of radical form of Islam was driven, I think, by a quest for identity, by people that were very confused by their own upbringing as to who they were and this kind of ideology told them, you know, you are a proud Muslim, a member of a community that stretches, you know, all the way from Tangier to Indonesia, uh, and you are being oppressed, and you have to take the agency into your own hands and, and fight back. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> So now we come to identity in a liberal democracy. The United States, Britain, Canada, you know, places like that. Because what we call identity politics is oftentimes not associated with, you know, the Islamic State or German nationalism. Although I think I've explained to you why I think it actually, these are actually all different manifestations uh, of a similar kind of psychological phenomenon. But in the United States, uh, we have a different kind of identity politics. Uh, the identity politics that we usually refer to when we use that term starts with the big social movements that happened beginning in the 1960s. So this was the civil rights movement for African Americans, the feminist movement for women, 
the LGBT movement, the uh, movement on behalf of the disabled, indigenous peoples, all of these groups had something in common. All of them were disrespected by mainstream American society, right? In the early 1960s, mainstream society uh, was white and male. Uh, it did not include all of these groups, and the basic demand that all of them were, were making was for equality, for an equality of uh, respect. And so identity politics starts out as a very legitimate appeal to join in you know, a, a, an equal democracy uh, and to have that kind of equal rights and equal respect uh, granted. But as time goes on, that form of identity politics begins to morph in certain subtle ways where uh, what's being demanded is not simple equal treatment for people in these groups as individuals, but you know, recognition of their existence as a group that is different. So just as an example, in the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King in the early 1960s basically said, you know, African Americans should be treated the way white Americans are. That's all we want. We want, uh, you know, we want to be integrated into the existing uh, American democracy. The black power movement began to make a different kind of uh, appeal. They said, no, actually, African Americans are not just like white people. You know, we have our own culture. We have our own traditions. We do not simply want to be, you know, uh, white Americans with a different skin color. We want to actually preserve those traditions uh, as a group. This was much more pronounced in the feminist movement where there's actually a much, uh, I mean, there's a very powerful, you know, so part of the feminist movement wants equal rights, equal pay for equal work, that sort of thing, but part of it also said, actually, women are not the same as men. You know, they have different interests, different ways of seeing the world, they have different lived experiences, and we do not want to be just like men. Men are actually pretty kind of assholes, you know, when you think about it. Um, you know, so we want a different, you know, we want respect for a different kind of, uh, of identity. Now, a general thing began happening on the left, both in the United States and in Europe. In the 20th century, the left was basically built around the working class. So in Europe, you know, these were trade unionists that were members of the British Labor Party or the German Social Democrats. In France, they voted you know, for the Communist Party. In Italy, uh, the same thing. And what it meant to be a left-wing uh, activist meant you, know, you want greater economic equality for the working class, which in all of these countries was predominantly white. As identity politics began to unfold, the way that people began to interpret inequality was less in terms of these economic categories, but more in terms of the specific marginalized groups and their specific uh, experiences. And therefore, it began to focus around you know, uh, minorities, women, gays and lesbians, uh, all of the specific identity groups that became the locus of, uh, uh, you know, of, of social justice movements for greater equality. And in the process, the white working class began to gradually defect to other groups because they did not feel rep uh, adequately represented you know, in this country by the Democratic Party, in France by the socialists or communists. A lot of those voters that had voted communist in you know, French elections for generations now began to vote for the National Front, this anti-immigrant uh, 
uh, populist uh, party. And this has been going on in American politics really since the 1980s. Ronald Reagan was the first Republican president that managed to get a significant number of working class uh, votes. These people had been part of the Democratic Party coalition from the New Deal on, right? In the 1936 election, probably 80% of working class whites in the South voted Democratic because you know, Franklin Roosevelt was going to redistribute income and do something for them like the TVA and all of the jobs programs that he was promoting. But that coalition began to fracture as the understanding of inequality began to shift uh, towards this identity, uh, this new kind of identity basis. And that has led to an overall shift in American politics where the alignments between the two parties are increasingly based on you know, these fixed biological categories so that increasingly the Republican Party has come to see itself as the party of white people and the Democratic Party has come to see itself as a party of minorities and women. And that was a lot of the, you know, the targeting of you know, campaigns during uh, the most recent election uh, because in fact you know, people do organize themselves uh, in this fashion. All right, so the question is you know, where does politics uh, go from here? I think there's a lot of reasons for thinking that we are in a really bad place right now because the, so I don't want to draw any um, moral equivalence between, you know, the, the left-wing forms of identity and the, the right-wing forms. The right-wing forms are basically this white nationalism or the alt-right or, you know, a lot of the supporters that Donald Trump has uh, called into existence. Uh, I think that what they've done is to borrow the framing from the left. And so for the first time you have white people in this country getting up and saying, well, we're a minority too. We're being shafted. We are being disregarded by uh, elites. Uh, Arlie Hochschild, who's a sociologist at Berkeley, has this very nice ethnographic study of Tea Party voters in rural Louisiana. She's got this metaphor in the book where she says the way they see themselves is they're all standing on a long line in front of a door in a house in the distance. The door is labeled the American dream. They want to go through that door. They're raising families, going to work every day, doing things that you're supposed to do to you know, get to the American dream. And then all of a sudden, they see people cutting in line ahead of them. You know, African Americans, women, Syrian refugees, Mexican migrants. And they say, this is really unfair that they're cutting in line. And worse than that, the elites are helping them to do that. The elites that live in Seattle, San Francisco, Washington, New York, you know, Chicago, places like that, all of them are the ones that are giving an unfair advantage to all of these people, all of these uh, line cutters. Uh, so this is, I think, not an accurate view of what's actually happening in the United States, but it does, I think, explain you know, the perception on the part of a lot of populist voters uh, as to why they are angry. And I would say um, the following, that they are correct in the following sense, that if you think about the white working class in the United States, uh, there is a kind of cultural disregard that elites, you know, meaning well-educated people living in big cities, 
in cosmopolitan settings, you know, like here, like where I come from in Palo Alto or New York or McLean, Virginia or wherever, uh, people in that particular social stratum, these are the people that dominate the media, they dominate the arts, they dominate Hollywood, you know, they're the ones that, that define American culture. Uh, they have not paid much attention to this group of people, right? You think about Hollywood movies. Who, who do, you know, Hollywood movies feature, right? You've got a lot of very strong women, you've got strong, you know, gay characters, but what's the last time you've seen a movie about a, you know, a coal miner in Kentucky or someone, you know, from a kind of humble, you know, white working class uh, background? There's been an opioid epidemic uh, among this group of people. 72,000 Americans died in 2017 by the CDC's estimates. More, twice as many people as died in automobile accidents uh, that year, and yet that epidemic up until the 2016 election had not been at the forefront of national consciousness uh, the way that earlier, I think, drug epidemics uh, had been. And so there is a sense in which that invisibility, that feeling that the elites are not respecting me and not paying attention to my problems, uh, and not seeing the world at all from my perspective uh, is, you know, is a legitimate claim on the part of a certain part. You know, there's a part that's simply racist, xenophobic, and so forth, but there's a part of that populist voter base uh, that I think has been suffering from invisibility uh, and a lack of respect. So going forward, uh, this is something we can discuss further in the in the in the Q and A, but. I think that for a democracy, we're in a bad situation when everybody thinks primarily about identity uh, because identity is, is shaped really by our biology, you know, what group we happen to be born in. And to the extent that that determines how we think about politics, our cultural preferences, uh, you know, things of that sort, uh, it's not good for democracy because democracy is supposed to be based on free individuals that can make up their own minds, can deliberate with one another. Uh, and in order to do that, I think you have to walk back this march towards identity on both the, the part of the left and the right. Uh, and I think what that means is you need to revive a sense of national identity. Now, national identity is sometimes confused with old-fashioned nationalism. It's not the same thing. Uh, national identity does not have to be xenophobic or exclusive or aggressive. Uh, and in fact, you can have a civic identity or what's sometimes called a creedal identity that is based on ideas like constitutional government, the rule of law, principle of human uh, equality. And I would argue that over time, that was the kind of national identity that the United States itself had uh, developed. Uh, you know, before the Civil War, Identity was actually racially based because African Americans could not become citizens, nor could Native Americans, women, uh, a lot of excluded groups. You fight a very bloody civil war, basically in order to pass something like the 14th Amendment, which says all persons born and naturalized on the territory uh, of the United States are citizens of the United States. A very, very important achievement that does not get actualized uh, in the United States for another hundred years until the Civil Rights Movement. But by the time you get to the Civil Rights Movement, I think American national identity has shifted into this civic form of identity where 
being an American is not being of a certain racial stock, it's not being of a certain ethnicity, it's not being of a certain religion, it basically means loyalty to those political foundational principles you know, that, that constitute American democracy and that was an important achievement. So I think that identity, the concept of identity is very, uh, it's very plastic, you know, it's, it's shaped by the way that people talk about uh, identity, the way that leaders you know, um, uh, shape things. And I think that what we need to think about a little bit is how do you get back to an integrative civic identity rather than, you know, simply lining up uh, and, and, you know, having a political order that is so polarized that the government basically, you know, cannot make the most basic kinds of decisions on budgets, on appointments to the court, to all sorts of uh, decisions that normal democratic governments need to do. I think you can do this in a number of ways. I mean, it's partly through civic education. Uh, I actually think that something like national service is a great idea because one of the things that builds a sense of identity is a sense of obligation, right? That being a citizen isn't just a matter of receiving rights from the state and receiving benefits. You also owe your country something, your, your political system, uh, and you can pay that in terms of either military service or civilian service uh, or something of the sort. I think there's other issues we can talk about in greater length in terms of uh, immigration policy because I actually do think that this is something that neither the left nor the right is really addressing properly. Uh, but because immigration has become such a spur to populist voting, I think that it's important that, you know, that that problem be uh, uh, fixed and uh, addressed. So there's a number of things I think that can be done. It's important to do that. In fact, I would say the, the crisis is a bit more urgent in certain European countries even than it is here uh, because they've got a bigger problem with, you know, with national identity. Uh, so I think that I am running out of time. <laughs> So thanks for your attention, and I'm really uh, eager to have your any comments or questions that you may have. Thank you very much. So I guess we have we have microphones. Um, okay. Oh yeah, there's a microphone up at the front. Yes, sir. Yes. Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so, you know, there's been a, um, a solution to the immigration problem that's been on the table for the last 30 years, uh, really since the 1980s, and it basically involves a trade. Uh, the trade is, you know, we have 11, 12 million undocumented immigrants in the United States. The vast majority of them are living peacefully, working, raising families, and so forth. They need to be given a path towards citizenship. Uh, on the other hand, I think that uh, it is the case that you cannot have a democracy if you actually don't control your borders. We say the people are sovereign, but if you actually can't define who the people are, you're, you know, they're not really sovereign. And so the other side of that bargain is prospectively to do things that will actually enforce the existing 
you know, immigration laws, and we have not been able to, you know, that was the basis of the immigration reform bill that under George W. Bush, that there was a bipartisan coalition that was trying to push this. You could not get this through Congress because on both sides, there were people dead set, you know, there, there are people on the right dead set against anything that they call amnesty. And then on the left, you know, in the Democratic Party, I think they've also got a problem because a lot of Democrats, um, you know, have played around with things like abolishing ICE or, um, you know, sanctuary cities uh, and have not been willing to, you know, forthrightly say, yeah, we actually do have to be able to enforce, uh, enforce borders. That's, that's got to be the basis of any kind of future deal. So in a way, that's, that's DACA, but it's not just for the children of recent arrivals, it's, it's also their parents also that have to be legalized. So I think that's the, you know, that's the solution. Yes. Thanks. I was going to ask a very similar question about yeah. uh, immigration, but um, more specifically, I guess, um, for, for this kind of nationalist fervor, like, what do you think the message, the most successful message for, like, immigration policy, it seems to be a little bit uh, opposed to that. And, like, what, what sort of, what sort of spin can, can kind of be placed on that such that it can more appeal? So, and, yeah. yeah. No, that's a really good question. So I think that liberals sometimes do not perceive, you know, the opposition to immigration correctly because they tend to think, well, you know, it's just the result of xenophobia and racism. And, in fact... You know, so there are definitely people that are xenophobic and racist, including, I'm, I'm sorry to say, our president. Uh, but, you know, so that there's a certain core people, but there are other people that are actually concerned about the fact that it's illegal or that people are violating the law when they come across the border. And then there's another group of people that I'm actually quite sympathetic with that worry about whether the country is able to assimilate uh, recent immigrants given the level and the numbers and, uh, and so forth. And so I think that the way that you've got to handle this populist uh, upsurge is by actually trying to break apart that coalition and peeling away the ones that don't have racist feelings uh, by addressing an issue like you know, assimilation. I think that immigration is a great thing but if people in the second or third generation, you know, don't ultimately, uh, you know, Americanize in a certain way, then it becomes, you know, more of a liability than, you know, than, than a benefit. So that uh, involves a whole set of policies, you know, mostly in the educational system uh, to, uh, you know, to promote the integration of, uh, of, uh, of new arrivals. Uh, and then I do think that you do have to think about enforcement seriously. Obviously, you, you can't enforce against the people that have been here peacefully for a long time, but you know, as a perspective matter, and this is complicated, it's not about building a stupid border wall. Uh, you know, probably half of all of the undocumented immigrants in the United States actually came in legally with a visa and they overstayed the visa. And so if you actually wanted to enforce, the wall would only get at a certain you know, proportion. You'd have to have some you know, set of employer sanctions or some other way of identifying, you know, who's in the country legally. So those are all things that would be part of a policy. Yes. Professor Fukuyama, thank you for coming to Seattle and bringing your wisdom and insight. Could Vladimir Putin be any happier with his efforts to help <laughs> Donald Trump get elected? You saw the interview in, in Helensky after a private meeting. Who knows what uh, was discussed? But uh, 
uh, over this last weekend at the uh, commemoration of the end of World War yeah. One, you saw President Macron talk about a European army because NATO doesn't seem to be um, supported as it had in the past. Yeah. So if, if you don't mind, that's one line of thought. The, the other thing that I, that I think about when we're talking about populations, we see these you know, 8 million votes in Florida, 4 million on one side, 4 million on the, on the other, how, how divided our, our nation can be. But besides legitimate politics, you might say, I, I bring up things like um, the, the book, A Game as Old as Empire, The Secret World of Economic Hitmen and the Web of Global Corruption. When you think about authoritarian uh, countries, whether it's Saudi Arabia, et cetera, um, Russia today with the oligarchs, and Putin may be the greatest oligarch um, Yeah, we better get to a question, yeah. Um, well, what, what role do you think really, when you think about corruption, Gold, Goldman Sachs was in the news the other day yeah. about uh, money laundering again, and, yeah. and how much is corruption really playing a part yeah, so, um, we, so with regard to Russia, uh, it's a very strange situation because there's actually two policies towards Russia in this administration. One of them is actually tougher than Obama. So we now have stronger sanctions against Russia and a whole list of individuals and, you know, we've taken measures, we've provided arms to the Ukrainians, you know, things that Obama wasn't willing to do. So that's actually defines most of the policy. And then... Over here, you have President Trump, who seems to completely disagree with everything that his administration is doing, but he doesn't seem to know how to actually get it to do what he wants it to do. Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a weird situation. Uh, it's not a stable one, and so we'll have to see, now that this election is behind us, whether the true Donald Trump you know, is able to steer things more in his direction. Corruption is a big problem, yes. I mean, it's... it's uh, it's big. In the United States, the, the problem is not corruption in an illegal corruption sense. It's really, it's lobbying and, and the, the influence of money in politics because we have a legalized form of corruption uh, that is practiced in Washington that I think is very corrosive to the legitimacy of our institutions. Yes. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask, how do you um, present the idea of national identity to the left in a way that's palatable to the left. You talked earlier with yeah. the immigration question about assimilation, which I think on the left has become a bad word. And especially um, when the left identity politics, you mentioned that it's um, become the, the party of minorities mm -hmm. and minorities who have um, a history of being oppressed by mm -hmm. the US nation state. So yeah. Well, I think that the way I would defend it is by, first of all, saying who is threatening uh, that civic national identity right now? It is people like, you know, these white nationalists that actually want to drag us back into a racially or ethnically defined understanding of what America is or a religiously defined understanding of America. That's the real threat to national identity right now. And if you want to you know, preserve the rights of all of those groups, which is an important objective, uh, you know, that's one of the ways you do it. You, you emphasize that being an American means allegiance to a certain set of ideas and values. It is not a matter of your skin color or 
you know, who your parents were or, you know, what your religious uh, profession is. I, I think that was, that's basically the uh, appeal I'd make. I mean, partly it's also a tactical issue. I think that, you know, the Republicans have been very good at capturing the patriotism issue, and that's not, it, it, it shouldn't be necessary. It, it should be possible for people on the left to also, you know, uh, make use of, of patriotic tropes because, in fact, you know, people in the United States uh, on the left have a lot to be proud of. So I guess that's my answer. Yes. Uh, fascinating talk. Thank you. Uh, I would, would love to hear your thoughts on how the recent election of Bolsonaro in Brazil fits into the, the global trends of populism that you've been talking about. Yeah, so Brazil is a, a strange case because like other Latin American, so the, the populism in Northern Europe in the United States is based on a declining middle class that has been buffeted by deindustrialization. Brazil does not have a large middle class. Uh, what it's got is an elite, uh, which you know includes a lot of the middle class people there, and then a lot of poor people. Uh, and so their populism has typically, I mean, Latin American populism has typically been of the left-wing sort, like. Uh, Hugo Chavez in uh, Venezuela. What's weird about Bolsonaro is that he's a white guy who has been using racial language, you know, much more explicit race, much more explicitly racist than than Trump, uh, in a country where the median Brazilian is got a brown skin, uh, uh, and and actually where the white people are a fairly small minority of the whole uh, population. But I think that. The way that they got there was that there was such a disgust with the Workers' Party, the PT, in that country uh, because of this ongoing corruption investigation that uh, the hostility to that party has made a lot of very rational Brazilians vote for this guy that you know has expressed some pretty, I think, authoritarian uh, ideas, uh, and so it's it's a it's a kind of sui generis form of, uh, you know, of populism that is neither quite left nor right in, in any of the traditional senses. But it's very, you know, it's potentially very dangerous because Bolsonaro has praised the military dictatorship in Brazil, you know, in the 60s and 70s and wants to bring some of that back, you know, in terms of fighting crime. I hope that he does not end up like uh, uh, President Duterte in the Philippines who, basically has launched this extrajudicial, you know, killing campaign that's probably killed 10,000 people in the Philippines now. Yes. Uh, Professor Fukuyama, I'm wondering how specific and practical your advice can be to us uh, if, 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 if to the extent we are sold as I am on the idea that we need uh, American uh, uh, civic virtue to be uh, an organizing principle, that we need to uh, be uh, uh, feel patriotism for our constitutional democracy. What can we do uh, as individuals tomorrow, this weekend, to uh, try to bring that about? <laughs> well, uh, it was easy. If you had asked me this like seven, eight days ago, I would have said, <laughs> vote. <laughs> uh, because fundamentally, you know, fundamentally, uh, a lot of these things that you'd like to do cannot be done except with political power. And in a democracy, how do you get political power? You win elections. And so if the right people don't win elections, then, you know, the right things aren't going to happen. 
Uh, I, I think that's just the simplest thing. I, there's a guy that, that writes this blog on California weather, and you know he had this great thing that I retweeted where he said, people are constantly asking me if I want to do something you know, to stop climate change, what do I do? What, what can I as an ordinary citizen do? He said, my advice is to vote. Uh, and I think that's right. It's not just true for climate change, but it's true for you know, national identity for you know, any of these issues. I mean, it really is a matter of, uh, of politics. So you're saying basically to vote for people, for politicians, candidates, who are already espousing that notion of yeah. American identity. That to support it or to, and to mobilize and to, yeah, to organize that sort of thing. Yes. Uh, it seems that at about 1900, the United States reunited on the basis of white male supremacy, and that the 20th century United States was a white man's country, yeah. at least until 1963, when Martin Luther King offered a very different vision that seemed for a long time to really have some uh, real hold on the country. What went wrong with that? Uh, actually, <laughs> the white man's country really appeared in, in the 1876 Tilden Hayes election because that was the election that brought the southern states back into the Union and then you know, led to the toleration of Jim Crow and segregation and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I am not sure that we should be overly pessimistic right now. So clearly, you know, when Obama was elected in 2008, a lot of people said we've achieved this post-racial America, and that just is nonsense. I mean, those racial feelings, unfortunately, are still there, and they're still pretty strong. But I actually sort of think that there are, you know, if you look at generational attitudes, changes in generational attitudes, younger Americans really do think differently from their, you know, their uh, parents. Uh, and so part of it, I think, will be a matter of generational uh, turnover. Uh, and also, a lot of this stuff is fueled by, you know, opportunistic politicians. And so we got one right now. Uh, you know, that is deliberately trying to fan these flames. But if you, again, if you vote and you elect somebody different who actually wants to, you know, integrate and, and you know, and build uh, bridges again, that's possible. I, I think that's, uh, I'm still optimistic that that's possible. Yes. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I'm wondering if one of the main barriers to people who are perhaps white and working class uh, being in power and being represented is perhaps less about people of color being represented or uh, being favored and rather about uh, corporate interests continuing to have the elite remain in power. Just in Washington, we had a ballot initiative uh, where records were set on uh, campaign spending by no. oil companies against a clean energy initiative that was championed by both communities of color and by working class groups. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if there's a possibility that this, um, you know, the negativity around identity politics might be a misdirect by the reality of uh, corporate control on our elections. Yeah, uh, well that I think works in, in, in both directions. So the, you know, the, the influence of corporate money, lobbyists and so forth, that's, there's no question that that's true. Like my favorite example of this is why do we still have this carried interest provision that allows hedge fund uh, owners to pay only 15% uh, only a 15% tax rate, it's because of lobbyists, right? Because they've they they know how to play this uh, this Washington game. Uh, but 
what has hurt the white working class really is, I think, this, this identity politics issue because uh, if you think about it, for example, Obamacare, uh, one of the biggest beneficiaries of that are white working class you know, people in the South. And yet they have voted for Republican politicians who are making it their number one priority to repeal Obamacare. It makes no sense from their own economic self-interest standpoint. Why is this the case? I think they've just had this, the wool pulled over their eyes, you know, in terms of the rhetoric surrounding that, that this is socialism. You know, there is, I think, actually a kind of racial background to this, that Obama was a black president and this is basically meant to, you know, benefit black people, uh, this sort of thing. And so people have been duped, I think, by that kind of, uh, that kind of rhetoric. So there's no question, yeah, corporate interests are distorting our public policy. They're contributing to existing inequalities. We got to deal with that. Uh, the identity stuff, though, I think you, in a way, you have to deal with it in its own, in its own terms. Yes. Thank you again for your talk. And um, you mentioned with voting, and that kind of answers part of my question, but I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about institutions and the weakening of institutions and the fragility of institutions in this country right now. Yeah. Um, and really, um, what, it, what are the building blocks for the new narrative uh, that we can really counter um, the, toxics, the situation yeah. where we have parties that are... Um, believe the others are at fault. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, um, so we're undergoing this great political science experiment, which is fascinating as a political scientist to watch about how strong are our institutions. Uh, you know, my feeling, uh, and what I said when I was doing a version of this lecture before the election last week, is ultimately the strongest check are not the courts, not the press, not Congress, it is uh, voters you know, in elections. The electoral check is the most important. And actually, you know, I was kind of discouraged on election night, but I think things are actually not that, you know, it, it actually was a pretty good <laughs> a rejection of Trumpism. I mean, the Democrats may get 40 seats. They may flip 40 seats in the House. Uh, they needed like 23 or 24, so they got a really good margin. Uh, they may only, the Republicans may only gain one seat in the Senate. You look at state houses, the Democrats, you know, made a big comeback. So I'm moderately encouraged that, you know, the American people are more sensible. You know, you can make a mistake uh, in a vote in a democracy once, but if you don't correct that mistake down the road, then you're really in trouble. And so I think we partially corrected it. So I'm, I guess I'm uh, feeling a little bit better now than I was, you know, a few months ago. Yes. Hi. Could you expand a little bit more about this um, this citizen identity in terms of, say, global citizenship? Yeah. So in a context I'm thinking in the past century, we've been thinking about globalization as Americanization. Mm -hmm. So how does this citizen identity really work? So I don't think there is anything there's no such thing as global citizenship. I mean, citizenship has a very specific legal institutional connotation. It means you can vote, it means you pay taxes, you obey the laws of a particular country. When people say, I'm a global citizen, what they're really saying is, you know, I'm sympathetic with the struggles of other people. I don't want to see things just from the national perspective of my country. You know, I want to help 
people, I like international cooperation. You know, so all of those are laudable motives, but that's not citizenship. Uh, I think that citizenship is actually still quite important, and actually uh, nation states are still very important for a single reason, which is that that's the locus of power. That's the locus of legitimate power. Uh, and in the world, if you want to accomplish anything, you have to be able to use power. So we want more international cooperation. We desperately need that. But I do think that it has to be the cooperation of, of nation states with one another. Uh, and we need, you know, we need an attitude that's open to that kind of cooperation. But the term global citizenship you know, in itself, I think, is a little bit problematic because I don't think anyone actually is a, is a global citizen. They're a citizen of a particular country. Yes. In a sense, then, you've segued into a form of optimism, um, looking at how some of our identity politics override our economic interests. In Seattle, our harbors are filled with Costco ships from China. Yeah. Our trade on the West Coast, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, is from Asia, mm -hmm. from China. You haven't mentioned a large part of the world. Our offset in our trade wars has been China waiting and watching while he does his thing mm -hmm. and then moving on. We have been hurt in Washington State by the trade embargoes. Our customers are also on the other side of the ocean. But it's a different world in terms of the identity in Asia. And I'm, I'm just wondering if there's a sense of optimism. If I were young, I would not learn German now. I would learn Chinese. <laughs> it's the language of the future. Is that an optimistic approach? Economic approach? I don't approach? think so. <laughs> uh, China is an authoritarian country. Uh, it has become much more authoritarian since Xi Jinping took over. I think a lot of us, myself included, were hoping that as the Chinese grew richer, they would grow more democratic and more open. And really, the opposite uh, has happened. And actually, I think in the of all of these trade disputes that Trump has picked, the one that's the most legitimate is the one against China, because actually, they do do a lot of the things that they're accused of in terms of stealing intellectual property, of not reciprocating you know, the openness of Western markets, you know, in their own market, uh, and so forth. And so I think, actually, there's been kind of a sea change in terms of uh, attitudes. The business community, both here and in Europe, used to be the biggest cheerleaders for a closer relationship with China, and they've done a 180-degree turn because I think they feel they've gotten burned by, you know, the Chinese not playing uh, fairly. So I, uh, for better or worse, I sort of think that we're in for a pretty rough period in our relationship with China uh, down the road. And that's, that's not just Donald Trump. That's, you know, I think that's based on a broader consensus. Yes. Uh, Professor Fukuyama, I'm, I'm Burmese-American, and both countries that I, my, both my adopted- I'm sorry, you're from? Uh, from Burma. Burma, okay. So as a Burmese-American, yes. I feel like both countries are going down very parallel paths, mm -hmm. um, in particular around you know, the Burmese generals. Yes. Um, they are using psychological warfare and using identity politics to hold on yes. to the power, and they're using um, the social media tools actively to oppress, using Russian-trained trolls, military officers that are trained in Russia, um, using Israeli cyber mercenaries mm -hmm. to really oppress a lot of the things that are going on inside yeah. the country. So, which, and 
your chapter on we the people was right on in pointing out that countries like Syria and Afghanistan, where there is so much diversity, and yet there's so much conflict. Myanmar, I feel like, is in the exact same yeah, situation. Is. Do you have any pointers around, um, given the government is not doing anything about building the national identity, how we can build the form of national identity in a way? And do we even stand a chance in this uh, day of social media? Uh, <laughs> that is a set of questions that I don't feel capable of answering. You're absolutely right, though, that Burma, it's not just the generals. I mean, there's a form of militant Buddhism that is true in, in, Myan, in Burma, in Sri Lanka, and a number of other places. Uh, and it's actually Buddhist monks that are driving a lot of the campaign against the Rohingya, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing, all of this stuff. Uh, and that's pure identity politics, right? Uh, and, I, you know, I, I'm sorry to say uh, I, I just don't have a enough knowledge. I mean, the thing about national identity is that it has to be done by people in the society itself. Uh, outsiders are really bad at giving advice on this kind of an issue, uh, but I do recognize that it's really important and it's, a, it's something that Burma really has to solve. So I just wanted to add one more thing that actually in many of the Buddhist monks that are quoted by the media are one of the the radical ones yeah. and the, the sane ones are never really have their that's, time that's and sense. That's unfortunately true with a lot yeah. of... Yeah, and then the main essence of Buddha's yeah. teaching is really the illusion of identity. So yeah. it's really, the, they're running the opposite direction of the teaching anyway, so. Yeah. Hi. Yes. It, it sounds like you've said that identity politics is a bad idea and that you're... Well, a certain version of it, yes. And that you're satisfied with this election result. So did this election agree with you that it showed that, that that form of identity politics is a bad idea and therefore it will be done less in the future? Yeah, so it's a complicated thing. So Trump's behavior before the election was very bizarre in a certain way because, you know, for the two weeks prior to the vote, he spent all of his time going to these big rallies in red states. Uh, and he did not make any effort to go to a swing state and try to convince suburban voters or people that could have got his vote total above about 40% of the whole uh, electorate, uh, which I took actually as a good sign because he's sort of given up on persuading any of those people. Uh, and I guess that I'm reasonably satisfied that the strategy didn't work because although they avoided a Republican catastrophe, you know, in the end, he, you know, it, it's just a losing strategy over the long run, you know, to basically rile up these extremely conservative voters and hope that you can continue to win elections by just increasing the turnout of this group that's a minority of the total American population. That, you know, you got to couple that with gerrymandering and with voter suppression and a lot of things if that's the future of the Republican Party. So, whether the Republicans will actually take that, you know, uh, aboard and, and, and realize that that is a losing strategy, uh, I, I hope a lot of them start thinking seriously about that, uh, but we'll have to see. Yes. Hi there. I have a, uh, more of a comment than a question, but yes. I promise to be brief, and I'd be grateful for your, for your comments. Um, something that hasn't been addressed this evening um, is the problem, I would say, of extreme left-wing politics, mm -hmm. which um, I believe are also fundamentally exclusionary. 
Um, they privilege those who by certain arbitrary definitions are deemed to be most disadvantaged in society. And uh, indeed, I would argue that they are largely predicated um, on disempowering certain demographic groups in favor of others. Um, a very short anecdote um, from my personal life. Um, my alma mater is St. Anthony's College at Oxford. Um, and this week, um, there was an event scheduled to take place actually on Monday the 19th, which is International Men's Day. Um, there, was, um, there was an event scheduled um, at the college to address men's health issues, mental health issues, excuse me. And um, there was considerable outrage from what I suspect was a vocal minority that insisted that, of course, International Men's Day um, is representative of uh, systemic patriarchal oppression and that it should, um, therefore, yeah. not be recognized in any way. Um, and the event was canceled. The administration capitulated, um, despite considerable opposition from other students. Um, so I, I would be curious to hear how you think that this problem could be addressed and also how um, maybe we could encourage more um, empathy and moderation and civility from those on the left as yeah, well. So <laughs> we could spend all night uh, telling anecdotes about you know, stupid identity politics on university campuses because there's a lot of it. Uh, and I, so I think that, I mean, there's no question that that stuff goes on. Uh, I guess the question really is, to what extent is that actually going to permeate into the rest of society as opposed to being limited to, you know, these very elite, you know, kinds of places where pay, people can play these sorts of games. Um, I actually was going to make a comment in response to one of the earlier uh, uh, questions that one of the problems of the left is that because they become so preoccupied with this sort of you know, nonsense, they actually haven't spent much time seriously figuring out how to deal with the underlying inequalities. It's much easier to protest a statue than it is to formulate a complex policy and persuade people to vote for the taxes to pay for a social program or something like that. Uh, and so in that sense, I do think a lot of this identity politics has been actually very destructive to the ends that the left you know, should be seeking. Um, yes? Do you think the leftist community at large, I think it's more specifically the new legislative democratic power coming in after the midterms, is willing in general to accept some of the legitimate concerns of the right side? Or are they so bound up in the resist movement against the personality of Trump that there's just an iron wall and they're not oh, willing I don't think to there's accept an iron wall. I don't think there's an iron wall at all. In fact, if you look at actually the, um, the political alignment of a lot of the new Democrats that were elected, it's not a big left-wing shift in the party. I mean, a lot of conservative, like Kristen uh, Sosema, you know, the new senator from Arizona, is a very conservative Democrat. So I think that that's going to be a big fight in the party. You know, there, there's going to be a big contest between the party's left wing and the more centrist people. Uh, I think that it's important that you know the party not move to a point where it's simply going to be rejected by you know. Uh, a majority of voters because it's too extreme relative to where you know the voters are and that is a risk that's a definite risk for them but I don't think anything that's happened up to this point has made that inevitable 
Are we? One more? Yes, please, go ahead. Thank you. Um, you talked about um, identity politics and uh, national identity. You didn't mention multiculturalism. I wonder yeah. how you see that concept fitting into national identity or what framework you use to yeah, think so, about that. Uh, so Thank multiculturalism you. is simply a descriptive word for a de facto uh, condition, but it's also an ideology that argues that all cultures are in some sense equal and that we have to give equal respect to all of them. And I think that that is fundamentally mistaken because democracies actually have their own set of cultural values. And you cannot simply say that a democratic culture in a democracy is at the same level with a culture that actually doesn't, for example, respect you know, individual autonomy, you know, um, equality for women, you know, so on and so forth. So that's, been, that's the big problem with multiculturalism. Furthermore, I do think that our uh, liberal democ democratic institutions are premised on the equality of individuals uh, and not the uh, equality of cultural groups. Uh, and that you start going down a very self-contradictory path once you understand liberalism in terms of, of you know, uh, recognition of cultures as opposed to recognition of individuals. Okay, thank you very much.